Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my friend and CNN colleague, Ellie Honig, to talk about his new book about the Department of Justice. It's entitled Hatchet Man. It's about Bill Barr's attempt to destroy the DOJ from the inside out. But before we get to Ellie, I wanted to talk about the Department of Justice's announcement this past week challenging uh, many of the provisions of Georgia's recently enacted voter suppression law. Uh, the lawsuit doesn't challenge the entire bill, only key provisions, namely provisions making it harder to cast an absentee ballot, the provisions that disenfranchise many voters who cast a ballot in the wrong precinct, as well as the law's provision prohibiting pro-democracy groups from distributing food and water to voters in long lines to cast a ballot. The legal theory here is actually pretty clear. Black voters disproportionately use absentee ballots in 2020. We disproportionately tend to vote at the wrong precincts, often because they're moved or closed more frequently in our communities and we're more transient. And our precincts tend to have long lines, so water in line provision was clearly designed to target us. This is a good thing. We finally have a DOJ that's doing its job. And when you listen to the episode today, you will understand why that's so important. The case is a strong one on the merits. The problem, as a lot of these cases, is that this case has been assigned to Judge J.P. Booley, a Trump appointee, and he will likely side with the state of Georgia. And a case will likely be appealed to the 11th Circuit. And if you look at the makeup of the 11th Circuit, where appeals from the states of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida go, of the 21 judges appointed in that circuit, 12 are Republican appointees. Now, that's not bad. And what you do need to know, though, is that of the 12, half of them are Trump appointees. So if you're keeping score, the district court judge is a Trump appointee. The assignments at the circuit court are random, but there's a strong chance that a three-judge panel will skew Republican and include a Trump appointee. And you've got a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So... Y'all see how even when you win elections, Democrats fumbling the bag on judges for years. We've been talking about this. It comes back to haunt you. I've been saying on this show for a while now that we need to expand all of the federal courts and not just the Supreme Court. But because we have moderate Senate Democrats who would rather side with Republicans and preserve the filibuster, we're actually never going to get any of this shit done. These same moderate Senate Democrats who enjoy being in the majority that black voters in Michigan and Georgia and brown voters in Arizona and Colorado gave them are the same ones standing in the way of progress for these same voters. At some point, there'll be a reckoning, and that will come where rank-and-file Democratic voters will have to take this moderate Senate Democratic wing to task for holding our agenda hostage. I hope that reckoning comes sooner rather than later, because black lives and black voters really do depend on us killing the filibuster that some Democrats love more than black people. And sadly, that's that on that. Now on to our show with Ellie Honig. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, 
tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I have one of the smartest people I know, uh, one of the best legal commentators in all the TV, not named Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, and uh, he's a little bit better on Zoom than Tubin, I'll, I'll tell you that much. And uh, one of my good friends, somebody I've come to love and appreciate and adore, we are talking a lot about Derek Chauvin and Giuliani and Trump impeachment and all of those good things. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Ellie Honig. And while we are just talking about this, Ellie, please tell the listeners the, the background of your last name, Honig, and what it what it means, just in case throughout the show I call you my honey. Oh, you you can call me that. That's okay. Uh, Bacari, <laughs> first of all, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm a, obviously a fan of yours and the show. I listen to every episode. I love it. So my last name, Honig, is unusual. It is Polish and I think German for honey, like the sweet stuff that bees make. So uh, I embrace that. And uh, people sometimes who see me on air in Europe will email me or, or you know DM me through Twitter and say, I just want you to know this is what your last name means. I said, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, so there's, you know, uh, you could, you could have a last name that means worse things than honey. I'm, I'm Ellie honey. To whoever wants to call I, me that. I love it. I love it. You know, <laughs> we start our first episode always the same way. And you know, this as we listen to try to give listeners a cool opportunity to, to really get to know who we're interviewing. And you've been a prosecutor most of your life. Uh, yeah. Talk about the arc of your career and why you chose to be, as I've articulated numerous times on this show, the most important person in the courtroom. It's not the bailiff. It ain't the judge. It's not the foreman. It's not the criminal defense attorney. It's always the prosecutor. Why did you choose to take that route? I agree with you that the prosecutor is the most uh, powerful person in the courtroom. But funny enough, Bakari, I started on the defense side. When I was in college, the sort of defining experience I had, I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. I did a, a semester long internship with the Middlesex County Public Defender's Office. And I went into prisons and I met with our clients and I watched trials happen and I got the bug. I said, wow, the human drama that goes into the criminal justice process, the stakes for the people. And to me, what really opened my eyes is these are human beings, right? We tend to think of criminal defendants as just a name on an indictment or, or you know, United States versus so-and-so. But when you sit with these people in prison and you hear their story they come to life. And that really resonated with me. I stayed on the defense track when I was in law school. I, I did the defenders program representing indigent people in low level criminal cases in the Boston area. And I love doing that, you know, sort of working on the street level to find witnesses and to try to, you know, poke holes in cops stories. And then I went to a big law firm after law school in Washington, DC, and they let me do a death penalty case. And I represented mm. a young man um, this is all public named Merritt Sims in Florida, young black man who had been convicted years before of killing a white cop during a traffic stop. And he was quickly convicted and sentenced to death. 
And my firm came in after the fact. And we, we argued that there were all these constitutional flaws in the case. And eventually we got his death penalty sentence reversed, actually. And he ended up pleading guilty to a lesser charge and, and is finishing up actually 25 years now. But I went to death row. I mean, I was on death row meeting with my client in Rayford, Florida. And so I know what it's like on death row. And that also sort of fascinated me. Um, I then became a prosecutor for 14 years. Um, I love the system. I love being part of the system. I think it's important that we have good, responsible, ethical people on all sides of it, defense, judge, and prosecution. I mean, that's pretty dope. I didn't know about your, you know, that's one of the things. So we don't, in my firm, we don't practice any immigration work. Mm -hmm. Um, We have the ability to, but we don't. And we don't do any family court work just because I don't have the emotional bandwidth to do it. What I'm also also not uh, able to or certified to do is death penalty work. So it's pretty it's pretty cool to hear you say that. You know, a lot of lawyers, myself included, uh, you decided uh, to both practice law and be a legal commentator. Why did you decide to add legal commentary to the legal work that you do? Yeah, so I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how you got started, Bakari, but for me, it was almost by accident. You know, I, I got I, called up. Rebecca called me while I was walking. Uh, I was with uh, <laughs> I was just getting off the set of uh, CBS this week or this week. Uh, the George Stephanopoulos show. And I was yeah. walking to Starbucks and my phone rang and it was Rebecca Cutler. <laughs> I have a somewhat similar story. So I finished being a prosecutor in the middle of 2018. This is right in the heart of the Mueller investigation. And a friend of mine who was doing this said, look, they really need prosecutors who can explain this stuff. And I did it for a couple months at CNN. One day I was running off set and Rebecca handed me a card and said, let's talk soon. Um, and it went from there, but I got to tell you, and I'm interested how you feel. I mean, I find it so satisfying. I find it almost like it fills that void that I have from not doing trials anymore because Mm. the stakes are high and you're on your feet. And a lot of people depend on us. A lot of people watch what we do and learn about the way the system works from us. And so it gives you that sort of adrenaline rush that you get from being a prosecutor and you're doing something that's really, really important. I was listening to your last episode with, with Jamie Hector, who yep. is is just a great, you know, I mean, a great, great actor. Yeah, I, um, I thought he was. I thought he was going to go like method and go into a role while we <laughs> were talking. Going to Marlo, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I should I should have responded to your question about honing, but with with my name is my name. Yeah, my I name is that. my name exactly. You just said that was a great setup. <laughs> <laughs> but but Jamie Hector, the way he was talking about being an actor kind of resonated with me with what we do. I mean, we're not actors. We are ourselves. And in fact, we are encouraged to be ourselves by CNN. But the way he talked about how it's a craft and you have to get the reps and you have to think about what you're doing and you have to prepare that really, you know, I'm no Jamie Hector, neither of us is, but you have to approach what you do is not just, I'm going to walk on set and chat. You have to think about what points do I want to make? How do I want to lift up the other comments? with me? How do I want to make sure the anchor looks good? You know, it takes a lot of work and I love that aspect of it too. You know, I, I was just thinking because many people don't know that me, you and Laura Coates all kind of chat off air yeah. often about, about the things that are going on. And it actually helps me because, you know, I get a chance to see various different, various personalities and how they think because I still do practice law. And I actually yeah. have a, I have a criminal trial. I'm a criminal defense attorney as well. I love it. I have a criminal trial, two week criminal trial coming up. July twelfth. Uh, oh my goodness! So, yeah, it's a, it's it's, it's going to be. Where are a, you? What what court are you in? I'm in circuit court, which is our district court, which is our you know our our, yeah, our yeah. Fel- felony court in in South Carolina. I'm in and I'm in Bamberg County. I'm in my home county. So oh, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Before we, we we will get to your book, uh, yeah. Hatchet Man and Bill Barr in a bit. But a character in your book that made news this week is Rudy Giuliani, whose law license was suspended in New York. 
And you talk a bit about, or can you talk a bit about what you know about the ongoing criminal investigation into Giuliani, the former president and the Trump organization happening in New York? Because there are a few of them, and it's not always the easiest thing for the average uh, citizen to understand and keep up with. Yeah, Rudy. Rudy is a figure I talk about in my book. And look, Rudy is is a disgrace. I'll just say that right out front. Rudy was in charge of the Southern District of New York in the 80s. That's the office I worked at as a federal prosecutor. And I, you know, I'll say straight out, when I started in that office in 04, early 04, it was not long after 9-11. Rudy was someone we looked up to. I looked up to. I used to tell people, people go, which office is that? Is that the DA? Is that this? I would go, well, it's the office Rudy used to run in the 80s. It was sort of the first name I would say. And now he's just a, a, a complete con man and a disgrace and, and a liar. And that's not even me talking. That's the, the panel of judges that just stripped away or suspended his law license. Why he's done it, I can't even begin to imagine. But let me let me go through what he's looking at right now. OK, so the guy's now temporarily had his license suspended, his law license. He is being sued by Dominion by uh, other voting companies. He's being sued by Eric Swalwell and Representative Benny Thompson for inciting the January 6th riot. He's under criminal investigation in Georgia for giving false testimony to the Georgia legislature, again, about the big lie. And I think most concerning for him, he's under investigation by the same office that he used to run, the same office I used to work at, the SDNY. Now, what they are investigating him for apparently is what we call a FARA violation, the Foreign mm-hmm. Agents Registration Act. And what that basically says is if you're lobbying on behalf of a foreign interest, which you're allowed to do, you just have to register with the U.S. government so they know who they're dealing with. Right. So they know, OK, this guy represents a foreign interest. Rudy clearly did not ever register as a lobbyist. He clearly lobbied, engaged in political activity when he tried to get the ambassador removed, when he got Trump all into the Ukraine scandal. The only question is, was Rudy working on behalf of Ukrainian interests? They did a search warrant. Prosecutors did a search warrant on Rudy. That means they have at least probable cause. You need more than that to charge. And who knows what else they'll find? I mean, they sort of seized 18 of his phones and laptops. There's an enormous amount of evidence on there. So they got to go through it all. That's a lot. Yeah, he's got he's got I don't know that any one person other than maybe Donald Trump has ever had as many legal problems all at once as Rudy. Talk to me about the different investigations. You have one by Cyrus Vance, one by Tish James and one by I guess that 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 uh, U.S. attorney's office that are looking into the Trump organization or Donald Trump is does he have any potential legal issues to to be concerned about? You know, I'm trying everyone's trying to suss out what's going to to happen with the Manhattan DA investigation, which has been merged with Tish James AG um, with that investigation. To me, it's it's going to be an uphill climb to charge him, right? Because the, the theory is the Trump organization was engaged in every kind of financial fraud, cooking the books you can come up with. They would inflate their assets when they wanted a loan. They would deflate their assets when it was time to pay taxes. Even if they did that, prosecutors still have to prove Donald Trump knew about it. And what often right. often happens with bosses, Bakari, whether it's a CEO, I used to do cases against mob bosses is they go, that's not me. I don't do that. I don't. That's what my people are for. You have to be able to prove it. You can't just get up in front of a jury and go, come on, folks. He was the boss. He must have known. That's not he enough. He had to know. Yeah. 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 And, and that's why this guy Weisselberg, the CFO, the chief financial officer is so key. If they can flip him, I think they will have a shot to make a case against Donald Trump. Which they have not flipped. They have not flipped him yet. Right, exactly. And and look, if I had to guess, it doesn't look to me particularly likely. You know, the guy's been with them for decades. So if they can't flip Weisselberg, I'm skeptical they'll be able to charge Donald Trump there. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, 
Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So you've got a new book that's coming out, Hatchet Man, that chronicles in detail the lengths to which Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr, in your view, destroyed the Department of Justice. Why did you write the book? And ultimately, what do you want readers to get out of the book? I wrote the book as therapy, by and large, because I sat here for two years. Thank God we, we had this platform at CNN, because otherwise I would have been yelling no. into the wind, <laughs> right? I mean, look, when you work at DOJ, Bakari, it, it gets in your blood, it gets in your bones, right? You were raised to do the job a certain way. And the way I was raised is that really all you have as a prosecutor is two things. You have your credibility, you're telling the truth, and you're accepting the facts, good or bad. And you have your independence from politics. And we watched for two years as Bill Barr trashed both of those things. I mean, let me start with credibility. I, I say in the book, Bukari, I say straight out, he's a liar. I call him that four letter word. And I say, look, in the law and the media, we're very reluctant. And I think in a healthy way to call someone a liar, we'll say, well, he's misstated the facts or he, he got it wrong. The guy's a liar. The guy lied to us over and over, starting with the Mueller report on Correct. through you name it. And I list, I, you know, I detail these in the book, but he lied about things large and small. And don't just take it from me. Multiple federal judges have said he was disingenuous. He distorted the truth. He, Were you, you know, able to get the last ruling that the, uh, I forget, I forget the federal judges. I forget her name. When Amy she just Berman came Jackson. Out. I, 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 exactly. I should know that it should be seared into my brain, <laughs> but Amy Berman Jackson, were you able to get that portion in the book as well? No. Oh, I, I was, figured as much. The timing was probably a little too late. I know, I know, but I still have multiple federal judges who, who <laughs> called up. But you're so Bakari, you know, you know how many times I called Harper Collins and said, I gotta add this. I gotta add this. And they were like, it's at the printer. It's at the printer. Is, yeah. But I mean, look, people have said to me, Oh, you got lucky with the book because all these new stories are coming out with Barr. I said, Yeah, but not so much lucky as when you tap into a vein of corruption, it's gonna keep flowing, you know, for months and months after. We're still learning about things with this. I mean, guy. I, I think that a lot of people over the have been 
I'm somewhat jaded. And I feel like the average listener who's not a lawyer, doesn't work at DOJ, might not fully grasp that the attorney general is actually independent of the president and not the president's actual lawyer. For our listeners who might not be lawyers or fully grasp this, talk about the role of the independence of the attorney general and why it matters and why we should care. Yeah. The attorney general does not serve the president. The attorney general serves the people of the American public. Now, here's the thing that people need to understand. I talk about in the book, I call it the prosecutor's code. And that's sort of, you know, every field has its unwritten rules, right? In baseball, you know, you don't walk on the mound unless you're the pitcher, right? Every, every, you know, every, every sport has its unwritten rules. There's unwritten rules at CNN, you know, you don't cut someone off this and that. You don't what? curse on Wolf. You don't curse on Wolf. That's no, you don't idea. curse on Wolf. Show, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can curse with Acosta, by the way. He encourages it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but one of the most important unwritten rules is DOJ needs to stand alone. Look, there's no law on the books that says DOJ must be separate from the president. But I worked under almost exactly four years under the Bush administration, four years under the Obama administration. It didn't make a damn bit of difference in terms of the independence of the office. All the AGs I worked under, Eric Holder, Alberto Gonzalez, Michael Mukasey, John Ashcroft, all stood apart from the president, especially when it comes to the prosecutorial power. And Bill Barr trampled that wall. He did everything from basically distorting the Mueller report to save Donald Trump's ass, I believe, and I argue in the book, to intervening in the cases of Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. And now we're learning and there's still details we need to figure out, but to some extent, weaponizing the Justice Department uh, when it went about obtaining the phone records of media, only media who Donald Trump hated, including CNN and members of Congress. Now, there's more we need to know about that story. But Bill Barr politicized DOJ in a way that none of his predecessors did. And and I think that did lasting damage to the way people see DOJ, as you know. I mean, that that brings me to my next question. And for for some of my my more cynical listeners and for me, you know, when you have a Bill Barr, a President Trump and Republicans control the Senate like they did, I mean, I, I feel like... A part of the lesson of the Trump years was that so much of our government is governed by norms, not hard and fast rules and laws with consequences that can stop people who lie and don't care. So the question for you is simple, but based upon your research and putting together this book, what can we do if we're confronted with the next Donald Trump or the next Bill Barr as attorney general? So there's two things, really. First of all, there are certain policies that, and, and pieces of legislation that can be put in place that can help. They can't solve it, but they can help. I'll give you one example. DOJ has very strict rules regulating communications between prosecutors and members or staffers in Congress, but there's no such set of rules regulating and limiting contacts between DOJ and the White House. They need to adopt that. They need to essentially eliminate that except for all but the most serious circumstances. And, you know, they need to define that. That's an example of a policy change. But so much of it, you're right, just comes down to norms. And and we realize when you really study our political system, our criminal justice system, that so much of the integrity of it, maybe for better, maybe for worse, comes down to just the integrity and the principles of the individuals who hold those jobs. And that's why I have such a problem with Bill Barr, because he looked at this job as a way to protect Donald Trump at all costs. And I argue in the book to implement his own. He really has, Bill Barr has an extreme view of the world. He really is a culture warrior. But I see, I didn't know that. I I thought that, you know, when you, before he got appointed, people had him out and they were holding him out as being this creature of Washington, who was this well thought out jurist who believed in the power of the presidency, but not a cultural warrior, which I guess was, was wrong. Let me ask you this. Uh, 
if you look forward towards the Biden administration and Merrick Garland, mm-hmm. contrast for readers the night and day difference between Bill Barr and Merrick Garland, because of all the Trump and Biden cabinet secretaries, I don't think there's a starker contrast in the contrast between those two. Yeah, two very stark contrasts between the two of them. First of all, Bill Barr is a pretender. I mean, the guy was attorney general of the United States twice. He was AG in the early 90s. He's actually one of two people in American history ever to be AG twice. However, the guy never tried a case, Bakari. You know, you've been in courtrooms. I've been in courtrooms. How many lessons do you learn from just being in a courtroom, right? uh, Yeah, Uh, you you made me laugh when I never knew he never tried a case. He's a pretender. Your your, your twins have been in in court as as many times as him. I mean, and, and that has real effect because you learn, and I tell a bunch of these stories in the book, from making mistakes in court, from having a judge bearing down on you, from having a defense lawyer check everything you say. You learn the right way to do things. You learn you don't lie. You don't exaggerate. You don't stretch the truth. If you get a bad fact as a prosecutor, you have to turn it over. You, you don't stab your colleagues in the back. All these things. Merrick Garland, by contrast, was very much a real prosecutor, up to and including the Oklahoma City bombing case, which he oversaw. So that's number one. Number two is the, the wall of separation we just talked about. Bill Barr basically tr- treated the job as president's personal counsel. He was a second Rudy Giuliani on the federal payroll. Merrick Garland and Joe Biden have both stressed numerous times that there's been no communication between them on big issues, right? They did the search warrant of Rudy's home. We were talking about that before. Yeah. On the day when Biden had something big planned, I think it was the State of the Union. And, and they didn't was, even tell him. Yeah. Right, and there was reporting that the White House was pissed. And I said, good, good, that's the way it should be. You shouldn't call over to the White House and go, hey guys, we got something big that's gonna steal headlines. Do you mind? No, that's DOJ handled that exactly right. So two huge differences right there. How does Mayor Garland clean up Bill Barr's mess? Because he not only has to do the things that we need the DOJ to do, like voting rights, which shout out to the Justice yeah. Department for the work they're doing with Shelby, uh, uh, policing, going after white supremacist, domestic terrorism. But they're also there's also morale and trust issues from the bar years that have to be fixed. What does that work look like? It is a massive cleanup job for Merrick Garland. And, you know, he's got two paths available to him. He could he could go the sort of let's lay low, let's stay out of any political turbulence path, which I think he's doing too much of. And then he's got these sort of affirmative correction path. And I'll give you one example, right? The E. Jean Carroll case. We remember this case. This is yes. the woman who- Explain uh, that. Explain yeah. this to folk because people yeah. are losing their minds. Now, I don't know- I understand legally, it's actually a legally sound reason that they're doing this. I do believe, however, that a president and his words and his thoughts and opinions uh, and defamation and the policy and law surrounding that will be tested again. And so my point is, I'm not sure that you had to take this stand on this case. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you. So E. Jean Carroll is the woman who accused Donald Trump of raping her in a department store in Manhattan in the 90s. Donald Trump then, after she made this accusation in 2019, said she's a liar and she is, quote, not my type. What a, I mean, every, every by the way, every sex crimes and, and domestic violence prosecutor in the world, I, I'm sure, cringed when they heard him say that, suggesting that somehow it's connected to physical attraction. Anyway. E. Jean Carroll sues him for defamation and well into the suit, by the way, he was getting his ass kicked in state court when he was about to have to turn over a DNA sample. DOJ jumped in. Bill Barr jumped in and said, we're going to represent him. And, and if DOJ takes over the representation, the case will get dismissed immediately because the United States becomes the party. We all I certainly lambasted Bill Barr. I said, that's outrageous because the rule is 
you only get covered by DOJ if what you do is in the course of your job. So right. that, like when I was a prosecutor, you get sued sometimes by people who claim you falsely prosecuted them. You're covered for that. You're not and covered. His com- my retort would be his comments were during the course of his job, although well, it, it related during, to something back. Correct. It was certainly during. And so that became the question. And a federal judge in New York, very smart federal judge I had trials in front of, said, no, no, no. Defaming, allegedly defaming a rape accuser is not part of the job of being president, right? It's not, it doesn't cover everything you do while you're in the White House. Now, Merrick Garland came in and said, I actually agree with Bill Barr, or at least I'm going to continue the appeal here. And a lot of people, myself included, said, I think that's wrong on the law. Like you said, Bakari, it doesn't mean you have to look. It's an important principle that federal employees be covered, be represented by DOJ for stuff they do in the course of their jobs. But I think it's more than justified to say this is outside the scope of the job. As broad as the job of the president is, what aspect of the presidency says it's part of the job to defame somebody, to call her a liar and say she's ugly, uh, somebody who accuses you of sexual assault? So Miracle and I think missed an opportunity there to say, we're not going to go that far. This is a changing course from what the prior administration did. One of my last questions for you. What do you think we should be looking for from this Garland Justice Department on gun violence? Let's say that that you know, maybe maybe Biden gets reelected or it's Kamala. I mean, I'm going to be pushing for the, you know, the Honig Department of Justice that that needs to be the next attorney general. But what do we what should we expect on gun violence, police reform and voting rights? Like what should our yeah. expectations be, given that we won't likely see solutions from Congress on any of these issues, leaving the DOJ as the only real cop? on the beat, so to speak, on these three issues in Washington? Yeah, so gun violence, I think you're right. I I think it's unlikely we see meaningful legislation on any of this. Gun violence, you know, just the other day, the AG announced that that they're going to be putting massive resources into combating the sort of illegal trafficking of guns, which is good. Look, ideally, you know, legislation would, would probably be more effective, but he's focusing way more resources on the gun violence problem. I'm not saying he's going to solve it, but I think Garland's doing everything he can within his power. Um, police reform, we've seen a real difference now. He's started to do what we call these pattern and practice investigations where DOJ goes in and basically gives a full body MRI of the entire police department. I've actually been part of one of those with the Newark Police Department over many, many years, and it's made a huge difference to the quality of policing there. The Trump administration all but abandoned doing that. And we've seen that Merrick Garland intends to bring them back. He's already announced that he'll be doing them in Louisville and in Minneapolis. And I'm sure there will be more to come. And voting rights, look, this is a big one. I mean, it's pretty clear to me. I, th- I wonder if you agree that HR1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are not going to pass the Senate. Democrats just no. don't have the, 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 whatever, the votes or the willpower, whatever you want to call it. But let's be real here. And just uh, just recently, DOJ announced it would be suing to stop the state of Georgia from its restrictive law. And DOJ is really going to be the last and best line of defense there. So it's very important that they took that step. So the most important question of the entire interview, when's the book coming out and how can people get it? (laughs) The book publishes on July 6th. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere you want. I am signing for everybody. If you pre-order, you get a book. This is my first book, by the way. I'm trying to emulate you, Bakari. I I know your first one. You you hit the list. I was, But I was jealous of you because I saw a picture of you and Preet at a book release party. And I want you to know (laughs) that I've been deprived of book tours and book releases. And so my second book, we're going all, we're going everywhere. But I'm I am buying ten of these books off Amazon because I just appreciate you and your friendship, and I know it's an amazing read. So thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast, my dear friend. Thank you so much. Can I tell you one quick story from the book party. Sure. I don't want to make you feel left out, but it's it's a surreal moment when it's like 
There's my mom talking to Don Lemon. There's my dad talking to George Conway. You know what I mean? But then to top it all off, we did the party at the restaurant that's above the comedy cellar. And my son goes to me, he goes down to use the bathroom. He's 15 years old. He comes, he goes, dad, Chris Rock's downstairs. He's doing a set. So my son ended up later on. Chris Rock was in the back of our party area, you know, at a separate table. And uh, at, at the right moment, my son got Chris Rock to sign one of my books to him. So my son has a copy of my book signed by Chris Rock to him. I mean, so, with all due respect, that's probably a better signature. But, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> I, I think so. I think, I'll, I'll concede. I'll concede. Thanks for having me, Bakari. Great. Thank you, brother. Have a good one. Enjoy. All right. Man, this was a great show. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Before I let you go, I had to talk briefly about uh, the Derek Chauvin sentencing. In case you missed it on Friday, Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years. Uh, now, if it was up to me and I were judge, I'd sentence Chauvin to the maximum allowed under Minnesota law, which was 40 years. But I'm careful not to call the 22 and a half years too lenient because the reality is cops kill every day and never even get indicted. No less convicted and sentenced. This was progress, even if the final numbers were lower than what we think the facts warranted. And that, I think, is the lesson from the Chauvin case. It's so rare that we ever see a cop held accountable. And the structural forces behind why that's the case, from DAs that don't prosecute cops to medical examiners that lie about how people died to juries that won't convict cops, our only hope is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that lowers the evidentiary standard for federal criminal prosecution. There's a lot of talk about qualified immunity, which of course matters. But qualified immunity is about civil liability, not criminal culpability. Cops and cuffs will actually build trust for many of us. And only the federal government apparently can be trusted to do that consistently if they're given the ability to do so. And there's no reform without accountability. And there's no accountability until cops are treated like any of us are treated when we kill someone. And that means a federal backstop when local prosecutors don't do their job and fairly investigate and prosecute cops. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys on Thursday. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.